All right, so we have uh, first homework is due today. So if you have a hard copy of it, you're just going to give to me. That's great. Just make sure I get it before you leave today. Uh, if you're going to submit it up on um, D2L, you have until 6 o'clock tomorrow before it's marked late. So you have a little bit of extra time. I will release the answers starting at 6 o'clock tomorrow. So as a reminder, homework one is due by then. There's no late submission for partial credit or anything. I can't obviously can't give you credit for it once I've given you all the answers. But I want you to have those to be able to review for the exam. So that is due today. Again, if you have a copy, that's great. I'll take it as, you're, as we're finishing up at the end of class. And if not, again, you can submit it up on, D2, on D2L. Just don't email them, um, please. Because as I told someone else with six classes, I can't keep everything straight. It takes me forever to figure out, OK, so-and-so is in this class. It's just much easier if they're right up on D2L because then they're in the specific class. So I know exactly who I've got there. So um, in a pinch, in an emergency, do email it to me to make sure I know it's done and I can see that it was done. I'll still need a copy either brought in on Thursday or uh, uploaded afterwards. So I mean, don't stress if you're having issues doing it. Get it to me before 6 o'clock so you get credit for it. But I will need it up there or a hard copy of the same file to be able to grade it. Uh, the other thing coming up due would be the review quizzes. They're up there. There's three of them. Uh, one covers chapter one. The second one covers chapters two and three. And the other one covers chapters four. Those are multiple choice questions, just like the ones that will be on the exams. So same test bank and everything. These are just, they're just randomly selected. So you can use that to review. They're worth up to a point of extra credit each. So it's certainly worth at least going through them once, even if you only get a few correct, because you get a few extra. You'll get, you'll get even if you do them, oh, you'll get at least a couple of extra points to help towards your exam. So it certainly can't hurt you to have done them, and it will certainly help because you're going to see a lot of similar uh, questions uh, coming up next time. So th you have until the exam starts to do those. So you've got until 8.30 in the morning on Thursday. So I've left them open until the, ex the, ex the exam actually starts there. Uh, then the exam will be next time. I went over the uh, question breakdown last time. So 30 multiple choice questions. 10 from each unit that we covered. So 10 from chapter 1, 10 from chapters 2 and 3, and 10 from chapter 4. So that'll be the breakdown for the multiple choice. There'll be one uh, longer essay that has a couple different parts to it that you're required to do. And then there's three more short answer, short essay questions that you'll do. And you pick two of those to do. And then after that's all done, the next week we have the first article review due. I did put up a link to the, a bunch of articles up on D2L. So you can go into lesson, is it lesson four? I don't remember which lesson it was now. So you can get them there. Come on. It is, I believe it's actually in lesson five. Yeah, under lesson five, first article review. There's the Dropbox where you can submit them if you choose. Uh, that's there. There's some example reviews from previous classes years ago. And there's some possible articles. So these give you an idea of the type of reviews I'm looking for if you want to review them. And the possible articles, there's about close to 20 articles up there that are, were published this year. 
So they're all within the last year, which is a requirement for this. And they're all perfectly good articles. You can select them. Maybe one of the titles will jump out at you when you look, when you look at them. You know, or there they are. So if one of those titles happens to jump out, with, out at you, you're welcome to select one and use one of those to read and do your review for, from. So go back and review the sheet that I gave you at the beginning when you're getting ready to do that. Make sure you're looking for each part that I'm asking for because usually what people miss on the first part is they don't give me one of the things that I ask for on the review. So if you don't do one of the parts, there's like five or six things I ask you specifically to do and you skip one of them, that ends up hurting you. So make sure you go back to that original sheet that I gave you, which is also available up here on uh, D2L. So there's a few. These go back to, how far back did I go? October of 2017. So you've actually got, you've got a good, good year's worth of them there. All right, questions? Yes? Um, it would be easier if they're all together just for organization. Okay. Just take a picture of it and submit it up on D2L. You can add it okay. on there as well. That would, that would be the easiest for me just to have everything there. Okay. Other questions? Yes? Uh, you can turn it in after class if you have it. Yeah, if you have it, I have. If, I'll take copies of it, but I just want to do it after after class and not take time right now to try to collect them. So just don't leave with them. <laughs> I'll try to remind you at the end. All right. Well, picture of the day for today then, and I should have said the uh, photo of the day questions. I can't remember if I told you last time, but they're based on just the first three weeks. The extra credit ones that I'll ask you. They're only on the first three weeks. I can't remember if I told you that last time or not, but I wanted to get the exam made up and not wait till today to get to see what today's picture was because they're not announced earlier. So I couldn't really do that. So this one will be part for exam two. So it's only those first six we looked at, and I'm taking five of those to ask you questions on. So this one will not be on this exam, but it could be on the second. So this one is actually a very short video clip, as you can probably tell just glancing at it there. Um, it's very, very short. It only runs a couple of seconds, but it's really more of a time-lapse video looking at the motion of a comet over the course of, this was an hour and a half, so 90 minutes. So it compresses 90 minutes into two and a half seconds of time, and it will run twice. So when I play it, we'll let it run here. You can watch what the comet does over that period of time. And you can see that it's moving very slightly. You can definitely see its motion. Now it's a solar system object. It's much closer than a lot of these other objects. Comets do come into the inner solar system so they can be closer to Earth. So they can appear to move relatively quick. However, this cluster up here is actually smaller than the full moon. So how much it's moving is really a very small amount. It's not moving a lot. So if you went out there and looked at a comet and just stared at it, you're not going to see it move. I mean, you're not going to see, whoops, try to hit the play again. You're not going to see that type of motion over the course of an hour and a half. Now, if you went out and were able to see it early in the evening and then went back later, you might notice that it moved a little bit relative to some stars. But comets don't flash across the sky. There are meteors or shooting stars, which are a different type of object that will do that. Comets kind of just sit there. They're not much different than a 
uh, planet or an asteroid in that, except that they're a little bit closer to Earth. So they do move a little bit faster. We can actually track that kind of motion a little more. Um, the other thing that you note, and I'm going to play this one more time since it's so short, is watch how the tail moves. If you can see the tail stretching back up this way, the whole thing moves down like that. A tail of a comet doesn't follow behind the comet. You tend to think of a tail as trailing everything. So if you looked at this, you know, first impression might be that the comet's moving this direction because the tail is behind it. But a tail of a comet isn't really caused by it moving. It's actually caused by the sun. The sun's radiation and solar wind, its radiation pressure, push out material and will push it back away from the sun. So what the comet's tail is doing is essentially like casting a shadow. If you think about it, the shadow always goes directly away from the sun. The comet's tail always goes directly away from the sun because the sun, it's, it's not a shadow, but it, the sun's radiation pressure is pushing that material back. So a comet's tail will always go directly backward. That means when a comet is coming in on its orbit to the, sol to the inner solar system as it comes in from the outer part, the tail does lag behind the comet. So it would be about what you'd think. The comet would be coming in and the tail would be lagging behind it. However, when it leaves, it's heading back outward, so it's moving away, then the tail actually leads the comet. So the comet is running into its own tail as it leaves the inner solar system. So that's one of the interesting, a couple of the things that you get to see here kind of when you look at this is that first of all the comet does not move very much and the whole thing moves as a group. All this is showing you is the direction of the sun. So we know in this image that the sun is in this direction way off below the horizon somewhere. Right? Otherwise we wouldn't see much of anything if the sun were up above the horizon because it would be a little bright. Questions? Oh, salt and pepper and ice, very good. This is, that's actually, the name is salt and pepper uh, cluster. Is actually the, it's actually one of the nicknames for the cluster. Good question, I didn't mention that. Did, should have mentioned that. But yeah, salt and pepper and ice is the comet. So comet is primarily made up of ice. Salt and pepper is actually, this, what they've labeled as M37 is actually the salt and pepper nebula. I did not look up how it got that name. So <laughs> Probably because it's speckled with brighter stars and darker, slightly darker stars that give it that, that appearance of like salt and pepper. Good. Other? Yes? How long was the actual time lapse? The actual time lapse was 90 minutes. So that's how far it moved. In 90 minutes it moved less than the size of the full moon. Not very much. Little bit. But it's going to be overwhelmed, you know, in 90 minutes, how far does something move through the sky? You know, if you look at the moon now and come back 90 minutes later, you know it moved, right? Because you can actually see that. And in fact, if you watch the moon relative to stars, if you have a bright star near it, you can really see how fast it moves. So the moon moves a lot faster. But yeah, it was about a 90 minute time lapse that they put down to two and a half. Two and a half seconds, but they repeat it twice there. Because otherwise you blink and it's, you miss it. Good. Other? Alrighty, well, we will go on and get started on the next chapter, which is chapter 5 on light and the electromagnetic spectrum. So we'll see what we can get through here. Come on, there we go. 
And again, this is not part this is part of exam 2, so this will not be part of the exam. So exam was just chapters 1 through 4. But we've got to keep going, so we've got to get through our chapter for this week, uh, which is looking at, at light. So we're getting through, we want to really start to look about how we learn about things out in space. How can we figure out what something is? We talk about the moon, okay, we've been to the moon, we've explored the moon, we've sent dozens of spacecraft to the moon, we've gotten samples of the moon and brought them back, we can study that. We've gone to Mars with rovers. We've been able to explore Mars. We've sent spacecraft to fly by Jupiter and Saturn and Venus and Mercury and even to orbit them. But how do we learn about as we get further and further out, as we get out of the solar system, I mean the most distant spacecraft is at the very edge of our solar system. Very, very edge, at the end edge of the sun's influence. It could travel as it's traveling for another few thousand years before it got to the nearest star. So we, while we're at the edge of our solar system, we're nowhere near any other objects. So how can we figure out what they're made of? And we can figure out what the moon is made of because I can go get a piece of it. I can get a piece of Mars. I can get a piece of other objects. I can go send a craft there to study them in the solar system. This class isn't about the solar system. We're going to be looking at stars and galaxies. How do we learn what they're made up of? And it's all about light. The only tool that the astronomer has when you get outside the solar system is looking at the light an object sends us. How else can we find out what something, how are we going to be able to find out? All I can tell you what stars are made of, all different objects. It all comes from their light. So that's what we're going to be looking at today is trying to understand light and how we can use that. When I say light, I don't mean what you think of, first of all. Just. Right? We think of visible light, the light that we see. We see each other reflected in visible light from the lights in the classroom or outside from the sun. That visible spectrum is this little tiny band right here of light. There are lots of other types of light. That's certainly one of them. And up until, what is it, about 85 years ago, it was, that was astronomy, was just looking at this little tiny bit of light. That was all we could study here on Earth, was just visible light until the 1930s. So all we could look at was visible light. So 100 years ago, light meant visible light. But now, it's expanded. We've been able to, even though we've known about some of these, we've actually been able to detect them and study them from other objects. So we have things like, on, around the visible, we have, at the edge of the violet, we have the ultraviolet light. Most of that gets blocked out by the Earth's atmosphere. So we can't study it from, from the Earth's surface. But it's still there, it still exists. So that's one type of light. If you go to the other direction, you have infrared, longer, wavelength, longer wavelength light. It's light just like visible light. It has all of the same properties. They all travel at the speed of light. All of these are just different forms of light, and all they have are different wavelengths, different frequencies that exist. So as you go from infrared, you can go out to microwaves and then into radio waves as the wavelengths get longer and longer and longer. When you go to the other side, you go from ultraviolet, you can go to x-rays, you can go to gamma rays, you can get shorter and shorter wavelengths. You can get really tiny wavelengths, the size of an atom. You can get really long wavelengths, size of a mountain, the size of a planet if you get out big enough. So the wavelengths have, there's no end to either one. You can keep getting smaller and smaller, you can keep getting larger and larger. So when we say light and visible light, 
we think visible light, but that's only this little tiny portion of this whole spectrum. It happens to be the part that the sun emits primarily. So it's what our eyes have adapted to be to see. So it's what we're used to being able to see and what we consider light. But there's a lot more to it, a lot more to light. So if I say light, I mean, I'm not necessarily saying just what you see with your eyes. X-rays are a form of light. They're exactly the same. They're just, a, they're just like visible light, the stuff we're seeing right now, but a much higher energy. Right? And we know that because if you get an x-ray, what can they do? They can penetrate your arm and you see, get through the skin and the muscles to see the bones. So they're much, they're much more penetrating, much more damaging. Fortunately for us, unfortunately for astronomers, the atmosphere blocks them out. So we're not getting bombarded from x-rays from space. Right? Probably wouldn't want to go walk outside and be bombarded by x-rays all the time. Wouldn't be healthy for us. Or gamma rays, which are even higher energy. So they're all blocked out by the Earth's atmosphere. So for us, great, right? We don't have to worry about getting an x-ray every time we walk outside. But astronomers, we can't observe them, that means, unless we get up above the Earth's atmosphere and put satellites up in orbit. So when we talk about light, light is unusual and that has two different natures. It behaves as a wave in some cases. I'm going to look at that first. And it also can behave as a particle. So a wave, might have talked about things like wavelength. If you could see the light waves, they'd go up and down like this. They'd oscillate up and down. And you'd have a crest, the top. You'd have the trough, the bottom. You'd have a wavelength, which is just the distance between two crests. And you can have an amplitude. So the wavelength tells you what type of light it is. And the amplitude would tell you then how intense how intense each little piece was. So the wavelengths will really tell you the type. It will tell you the energy of each individual piece of light. So they have a wavelength. A wavelength is just the diff distance between those two crests. It's the same for a light wave as it is for a water wave or anything else. If you watch water waves at the beach coming in, you could see that they're a meter apart, two meters apart, five meters apart. Whatever they are on the average would be the wavelength at that point. That would be the wavelength of the waves. There's also a frequency, which I can't really picture here. But frequency is how often the waves pass you. How many waves pass you every single second. And when you're counting light waves, you're talking about billions of them. You can't sit there and count how many are passing you. There are measurements that you can do to determine the frequency. But a water wave, you can think of it as standing there at the beach. And the waves come in. And if they're coming in pretty fast, you might get you know, one hitting you each second, say. That would be a frequency of one wave per second. If it's unusually strong, you might get two every second. That would be a frequency of two. Or you might only have one hitting you every two seconds, which would be a frequency of a half. Half a wave is hitting you each second, meaning it takes two seconds for each wave to pass you. So in terms of frequencies, the numbers for even the very uh, longest uh, even, the very low, even the very low ones down here are still very, very large. Even these very long waves are still, you can still talk about having you know, hundreds or thousands of them passing every single second because the speed of light is so fast. And in fact, for light waves, if you take the frequency and you multiply it by the wavelength, you get the same number. You get the speed of light. This works for any wave. If you want to find the speed of that wave, of a sound wave, 
If you know its frequency and its wavelength, you multiply the two, it tells you how fast that wave is moving. The difference is that sound waves can travel at different speeds. Sometimes they travel faster depending on the air temperature. Sometimes they travel slower. Um, you can use it for water waves. You could do the same thing. If you knew a frequency and a wavelength, you could figure out their velocity. But it would change. Right? Storm comes in, you might get more intense waves, and the, the velocity might change. For light waves, it doesn't. For light waves, it doesn't matter. It's always 300,000 kilometers per second. So if you know a frequency, you know the wavelength. You don't have to figure out what the speed might be of this wave because we always know that it is constant. So some of the ways that light acts like a wave is that waves interfere with each other. Oh, let's see, interference. If you go to a good example of that for water waves is a wave pool. They do those in some of the water parks where they have the big waves starting at the front. And depending on where you're standing, you might be getting waves that are three, four foot tall, or you might be standing there with nothing. You know, all the waves, waves will add together. So if you get a big wave positive and a big negative wave, they cancel out. And you can just stand right there, even though there's monstrous waves around you, and you're getting absolutely nothing when the waves interfere with each other and cancel out. Or they may add together. If you get a big positive wave and a big positive wave from each of the setups at the front, they add together and you start instead of getting a two-foot wave, you get a four-foot wave. So that's one of the examples of interference, but light can do the same thing. If you send two sources of light or light through two separate things, they can interfere with each other, add together, or subtract, depending on how their wavelengths match up. So light will do the same kind of thing. You can get much more intense light by adding them together. You can actually cancel out the light. So one of the ways that it behaves like a wave. It also undergoes things like reflection, refraction, behaving much like a wave would. And the Doppler effect, which we'll come back in a separate slide. I'm not going to talk about that much now, but the Doppler effect is another way that light acts like a wave. But that's not based on just that. Okay, light is a wave, but light also has other properties. Light also acts like a particle. So when in terms of a particle, there is a particle of light that we call a photon. And it is just a packet of energy. That amount of energy is given by some constant. Don't worry about the number. It's a really tiny number called h multiplied by the frequency. So the number isn't important. That it depends on the frequency is. So higher frequency, higher frequency, shorter wavelength means lots of energy. X-rays, gamma rays have real high frequencies, real small wavelengths. They're really energetic. Radio waves have Really long wavelengths, really low frequencies, they're not as energetic. So they're not as damaging. You know, you're better off to get caught in a field in a radio waves broadcasting at you constantly than you are to be standing in an x-ray machine for hours and hours and hours. Right? Which one is more penetrating, more damaging? It's the ones that have the higher amount of energy. So a couple of ways that light acts like a particle. Uh, one is the photoelectric effect. This is something that Einstein came up with. It's actually where he won his Nobel Prize, uh, was for the, his work on the photoelectric effect, which simply said that if you had light coming in onto a, a surface, that it could eject electrons. It could have those particles could kick off electrons out into it. And only if you had a certain amount of energy. So if you needed the energy of, say, a blue 
photon of light. You had to have that much energy. Sending just a few blue photons would kick electrons off. Red photons, much less energy. I could send billions of them and billions of them and billions of them. They don't add up. They act like individual particles. So I could shine the brightest red light I want shining at this. Not one electron gets kicked out. Because you need each of those, because they act like individual particles in this case. And you need that individual particle to have enough energy to release that electron, to kick it off of this uh, surface. Just a few energetic photons could do it. All of the less energy ones would not be able to do it. And it's one of the ways that light actually acts like a particle. The other way that it does is through gravitational deflection. Einstein, another, another Einstein uh, prediction that gave us that when light passes close to the sun or any strong gravitational object, it would, its path would be bent by gravity. Now, from what we looked at it with Newton, that shouldn't happen, right? Newton said the force was the gravitational constant times the product of the masses divided by the distance. Well, if one of the masses is zero, what's the force? Something times zero times something divided by something. Zero, right? Anytime you multiply something by zero, you're going to get zero. So there should be no gravitational force according to Newton. So if a photon passed by the sun real close to its surface, it should just follow that nice straight path because there is no gravitational force between them. Einstein looked at gravity differently and under his theory, it should be deflected even though it has no mass. It turns out to be true observations of eclipses uh, early, about 100 years ago, actually showed that stars near the sun were deflected a little bit from where they should be. And that, that is them behaving again like a particle. A wave would not undergo that same behavior. So really what it means is that light has this dual nature. It can be a wave. And it can be a particle at the same time. It has properties of waves. It has properties of particles. All right, so let's look at the electromagnetic spectrum again. Um, this is, again, all those different types. I've now got them up at the top going from longer wavelengths and radio waves on the right to shorter wavelengths and gamma rays way over on the left-hand side. The different lengths of the lines tell you how far they get through the Earth's atmosphere. So certain things can get down to the surface of the Earth. You know, here's our nice surface down here. So here things are reaching the surface. Here things are reaching the surface. That's it. From the surface of the Earth you can study optical light, which we've done for thousands and thousands of years. You can study radio waves, which we began doing in the 1930s. Once we had radio technology and radio dishes that we could use to detect the sky, detect radiation from the sky, but that was it. You could study this portion of radio waves and you could study visible light. A little bit of infrared in there actually comes in. There's some parts of the infrared that can actually be studied, especially if you get high enough up in the atmosphere. And that meaning just even a tall mountain would let you do that. But if you want to study anything else, you know, there's an observatory on a high mountain. If you want to observe anything else, there's a high-flying airplane. You're getting up pretty high there. You can't see any of these. The gamma rays don't make it down that far. The x-rays, most of the ultraviolet, a lot of the infrared, do not make it down that far. 
So you have to get satellites up in space in order to be able to see them. So it wasn't until the 1960s and 1970s when we started to put up satellites that allowed us to look really at ultraviolet, infrared, x-rays, and gamma rays to be able to study them. So at that point, we really opened the entire spectrum. We could see everything. And the difference is giving you a complete picture of something. You're now able to study it. Instead, you can, instead of just studying this galaxy, say, at visible light. You get a nice pretty picture of a spiral galaxy with its arms swirling out. But what does it look like? What is it doing in the ultraviolet? That tells us something else about it that we're missing with just looking at visible light. If we look at it in the infrared or the radio waves, it's giving off radio waves. And that tells us something else that might be going on there. The x-rays and the gamma rays can tell us about higher energy, more intense things that are going on within that galaxy. So to really understand an object, we have to look at it across the entire spectrum. We want to look at it at all the wavelengths, not just the one that we're used to, which would be visible light. Doesn't mean visible light isn't important. Again, it's what we've used for thousands of years. But it's only one small part of what we really mean as light. So visible and radio, we can observe from the ground. That's about it. X-ray, gamma ray, UV, and infrared, we need to get above the atmosphere, or at least pretty high. There are some infrared telescopes that will look at part of the spectrum that are actually on mountaintops. Airplanes, there's actually infrared observatories that fly on a very high-flying airplane. You get up to the point where you're above most of the atmosphere, you can see a little bit more. But you have to get really high up to be able to see this other stuff. You have to really be up into orbit to be able to see these. So just a little kind of an aside, just kind of reviewing a little bit about the electromagnetic spectrum and what part of it gets down here. So what parts we're able to see from the Earth. Now, another thing we want to look at that has to do with this is temperatures. So, when we look at this, this will lead us into studying the different types of radiation that objects emit. But what is a temperature? We measure the temperature of something. You're really measuring how fast the particles are moving on average. That is what temperature, that's really the definition of a temperature. I've given a definition of the average kinetic energy of the particles. Kinetic energy is just related to their velocity, how fast they're moving. So faster moving particles, higher temperature. Slower moving particles, lower temperatures. So if you have a boiling pot of water at 212 degrees Fahrenheit, those particles are moving a lot faster than those at body temperature, which is 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit, which are moving a lot faster than those that are at freezing or 32 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, freezing point of 32 does not mean things stop moving. Because you can go below 32 degrees, right? As we well know in the winter, it gets well below 32. So even within an ice, ice, the particles are still moving. They're still vibrating. Obviously, they're moving a lot less than they were moving up here, or as a gas if you went up even higher, to higher temperatures. But they're still moving and vibrating. So you can keep going down lower and lower and lower until the particles physically stop moving. That's as cold as you could possibly get, right? How can you go colder than something not, if you're measuring, if that's the definition of temperature, is how the particles are moving, and you stop them from moving, you can't get any colder than that. How do you move negatively? 
Right? You can't move. There's no other way you can move. Once you've stopped, the best you could do is start moving again, which means your temperature would go up. So there is a temperature not labeled on here, which is about negative 450 degrees, nothing we ever come close to on Earth, that would be what we call absolute zero. Coldest temperature you can possibly reach. Now, that's the, that's the scale that we often use here in this country. Uh, rest of the world uses Celsius. So in which case it's zero degrees for freezing, 100 degrees for boiling, 37 degrees for body temperature, and negative 273 degrees for absolute zero. So just another way of, doing, of doing, measuring the temperature scales. This one is nice and convenient because of course you have 100 degrees between freezing and boiling instead of you know what, 180 degrees between the two. But astronomers use a different scale. So we actually use what's called the Kelvin scale. It's similar to the Celsius scale, but it's offset. In the Kelvin scale, there's no such thing as a negative temperature. The coldest you can possibly get is zero. That's what we mean by absolute zero. Absolute zero on the Kelvin scale is zero. You cannot go negative because at zero you stopped everything from moving. Then you'd go up and 273 degrees is the, boil, is the freezing point of water. It's simply the Celsius scale offset. We've just moved the zero point. And it just means that there's no, uh, no, temp, no difference in uh, the zero point is actually zero. Now when I talk about temperatures, I'll generally refer to them in the Kelvin scale. It really, that 273 degrees doesn't make much of a difference for most of the temperatures we talk about. Because if I start talking about things like stars that are thousands or tens of thousands degrees, does a couple hundred, dollars, hundred uh, degrees make a big difference? Not really. We get to the center of the sun and it's 15 million degrees. What's 273 degrees? You won't even notice that difference. Right? You can add or subtract 273 from 15 million and you're not going to notice a change. So for a lot of the temperatures we talk about, this, is, this doesn't really matter, a lot of the high temperatures. A lot of the cold temperatures we'll talk about, you know, the temperature of space itself is about three degrees. That's three degrees Kelvin, three degrees above absolute zero. So empty space still has some kind of energy to it. It's not zero, it's not completely absolute zero, it's very close, much colder than anything we have here on Earth, but it doesn't get all the way down to zero. So. Again, just to define what temperature is and kind of reference that what I'll be using if I say a temperature, unless I say something else, I tend to be talking in terms of the Kelvin scale, which is very, very close, essentially close to the Celsius scale. So the next thing I wanted to look at and finish up this section of it was to look at two radiation laws, two ways that we can tell, learn something about temperatures. And we want, I talked about composition. We want to learn what things are made up of. How about what the temperatures of things are? How do I know how hot the sun is? Right? Surface is 6,000 degrees. The center is 15 million degrees. Well, how do we know? How can we know that? How can we determine that? And we can determine that by looking at the radiation. And what most objects are out in space are what we call ideal radiators or black body radiators. The ideal radiator simply absorbs any light that comes into it. So I'm not a very good example of a black body radiator because you can see me. 
right? If I was absorbing all of the light that was coming into me, you wouldn't be able to see me. I'm reflecting light back to you. The tables, the black writing on the board, those are good examples of black body radiators because they are absorbing all the light. They absorb all the light coming from behind them. So the black tables are very good examples of an ideal radiator. They're absorbing all of the light and they're emitting light depending only on their temperature. So they are giving off light too. Right? Not that we see because they're very cold. Their temperature, at their temperature, in order to give off visible light, you've got to be temperatures of a star, thousands of degrees. In terms of Kelvins, these are a couple hundred degrees. They're giving off longer wavelength radiation. They're giving off infrared light. Right? So if we turn off all the lights and get infrared goggles, we'd see all of us glowing. Right? We're all giving off infrared light too. So we're not a perfect radiator, but we are giving off energy based on our temperature. We see each other by reflected light. That's not it. I'm not giving off any visible light. You're not giving off any visible light. We are reflecting it from the others. But if we turn off all the lights, we disappear, right? If I turn off all the lights and it's completely dark, we could block the one little window we got, we wouldn't be able to see each other. Because we're not giving off any visible light. That's the light our eyes are sensitive to. If we had infrared night vision goggles, we'd then be able to see people. You'd be able to see people moving because you'd be able to see their body heat. At a couple at temperatures of a few hundred degrees, you're giving off wavelengths way, way off over here in the infrared part of the spectrum. So the tables would be doing the same thing, but you don't see the tables through infrared goggles because the reason to see infrared goggles is to see the hotter things. And we're a little bit warmer than the tables are. So we're at a temperature of what, 37 degrees Celsius? the tables would be a little bit cooler than that. So they would not be giving off as much infrared. So that's what I mean by a black body. It's a perfect radiator. So it gives off radiation only depending on its temperature. That means it doesn't matter what it's made up of. So an ideal radiator, if it's made up of iron, if it's made up of copper, and you heat it up to a certain temperature, if it's made up of hydrogen like the sun and you heat it up to the same temperature, or if it's made up of peanut butter and you heat it up to the same temperature, it all gives off the same type of radiation. It doesn't matter what it's made up of. It just depends on the temperature of that. So it's a way then to be able to determine the temperature of an object. And the two laws I want to mention are the Stefan-Boltzmann law, which tells us that the higher the temperature, the higher the intensity. So that's shown in this image by the high temperature 5,500 kelvins up here versus the 3,500 cooler star down here. Well, the intensity, this is very low, way down at the bottom. This one peaks way up and shoots way up there. Higher temperature gives out more energy. And it doesn't matter what wavelength you look at it. This hotter star gives off more visible light. It gives off, as we go out, we go, it gives off more infrared. It gives off more. Uh, um, radio waves, it gives off more ultraviolet, x-rays, gamma rays. Those numbers may get really small, but it always is above. Those curves never cross. So no matter anything with a higher temperature is always giving off more radiation regardless of the wavelength that we're looking at. It peaks overall, and that's what we're going to look at in the next one, but it is always up above. So a hotter star will give off more visible light than the sun give off more infrared light than the sun, it will give off more ultraviolet light than the sun. A cooler star would give off less 
less visible, less infrared, less ultraviolet. The other thing, the other law is what we call Wien's law. Wien's law says that the higher temperature means that the peak where that object is giving off most of its light shifts. So our peak at very cool temperatures is out in the infrared. Because we're very cool, most of our light is being given off way out here in the infrared. We'd be another little curve going way down here with a little tiny bump down in this end, down at infrared wavelengths. So we are giving off infrared. It's based on our, te based on our temperature. A cooler star might also peak in the nearer part of the infrared or the red part of, this, of it. So a cooler star will look red in the sky because it's giving off more red light than it is blue light over here. A very hot star, even if you go hotter than this, there's uh, some that go three or four times hotter than this even, would be giving off a lot of blue light and would look very blue. So if you ever look at a star field of different stars, and I didn't point the one out, but there was a nice red star near that comet, bright, bright red star near the comet we looked at uh, today. It's a very cool star. Just by looking at it, I can give you at least an idea that it's a relatively cool star it's by its temperature. If I see a star that has a bluish or white tinge to it, I know it's a much hotter star. So just by looking at the stars, we can get some idea of the temperatures. If we actually make measurements, we can actually use a filter and say how much light is it giving off at one wavelength versus another wavelength. We can actually calculate a temperature. So just looking at it, okay, I can say it's red, it's a cool star, it might be about 3,000 degrees. If I make some measurements, I might be able to say it's 3,250 degrees by actually measuring this curve, measuring this curve along a couple of points to be able to determine that. So what Wien's law just tells us is that temperature shifts. A very high temperature has a shorter wavelength. If something is really hot and we'll look at things that go up to millions and millions of degrees, they're giving off lots of x-rays and gamma rays. Not a lot of visible light. They're, they could be giving most of their energy out in terms of x-rays. A very cool object Gas, in the gas between the stars is very cool and would be giving off infrared or even radio waves because it's so cool. So that's one of the things I say when you're missing things by looking at just visible light, you get a different picture. You can see these very energetic objects when you look at the x-rays coming from them. You're missing that when you look at just the visible light. You can see these very cool objects when you look at just the infrared or the radio waves. So you get a different picture of the object and things look different when you look at them in different wavelengths. In fact, I don't think I put that up here. Let me escape out of here for a second. I'll come back and do the summary in a second. Um, let me give an example of that because it really helps. This one usually works out pretty good. There, let's pick one of them. Can I see how visible that is there? Uh, let's make it bigger. There we go. This is an example for our Milky Way galaxy. So the Milky Way, that little fuzzy patch of light that we see, that looks uh, visible light right there. That's what it would look like in visible light. But we can also look at it at other wavelengths. And when you look at it at other wavelengths, as you go up towards, uh, which direction are we going? 
you can't see them on there. Uh, no, there we go. So we have visible light, but if we look up at the one above it, that's infrared. So this is visible. This is a slightly longer wavelength of infrared light. All of a sudden, what was dark here is now bright. Nothing new appeared. It's the same part of the sky, but something is being blocked out. The visible light is being blocked out by dust in our galaxy. Now when we look at it in the infrared, all of a sudden it appears. And we can see the center of our galaxy. And in fact, as you go up through radio, different types of radio waves, you can see that they continue. That you can always see something along that central portion. It's most, it's all generally tends to be visible. But it's not visible to us. Or if we go towards shorter wavelengths like ultraviolet, we don't see it. But it does appear again when you get to the really high intensities. When you get to x-rays and gamma rays, x-rays here, it actually begins to appear again. Because there is something going on at the center of our galaxy that is producing lots and lots of x-rays that we'll talk about later. But the thing I wanted to give you is just to give you an example here of what I mean by, you know, this is one picture of our Milky Way. That's what we know. That's pretty. But it's only a tiny part of the whole picture of what's going on. We need to put all of these, all of these together to really try to understand something. So we'll see objects that give off mostly x-rays and gamma rays. We'll see other objects that give off mostly radio waves. It was related to their temperatures, as we've just seen. But it also tells, can tell us some other things about those objects. So I wanted to give you one example, example there. All right, so we were finishing up. Um, this section, which again, I wanted to, there we go, wanted to emphasize again, the electromagnetic spectrum is not just visible light. So when I say light, it's not just visible light. It can apply to any of these different types. I talked about how light has a dual nature. Sometimes it behaves like a wave. Sometimes it behaves like a particle, depending on the experiment you're doing. And then we looked at the radiation laws to tell us how that spectrum varies with temperature. All right. Questions? Okay. Uh, creating a spectrum. So how do we go about creating what we call a spectrum to be able to study the light? We can get nice pretty images of things, but we find we can do a lot more when we actually break the light into its components. So if you used a prism probably or something similar at some point in the past, you shine white light through it and it breaks into the colors of the rainbow. Or if you've seen a rainbow, it's the same effect, except instead of the prism, it's water droplets in the atmosphere that are doing the same, having the same effect. They essentially split the light, white light coming from the sun, into its component colors. And you can see a nice great rainbow stretching across the sky. So white light that we see is really composed of all the different colors, red through violet. The reason we split it is because when the light is coming through here, this I know it's a black line representing white light, but uh, the black line there is the white light coming in. Of course, if I had a white line on the white background, you wouldn't see it, right? So the white light coming in hits this angled surface, and it gets bent. How much it gets bent depends on the wavelength. Short wavelengths get bent more. So the blue light and violet with shorter wavelengths get bent more than the red light. So it splits them into the color, colors. When you do it again, you do the same process. The blue gets bent even more. The red gets bent the least, comes closest to going straight through. And you end up with a spectrum. The whole, the, just looking at the light, we can learn something about the temperatures of the objects. 
But we can use things like a prism, like this. Uh, there's also little what we call diffraction grating. So almost look like little slides that have tiny, tiny lines etched into them that do the same, have the, do have the same effect. But the, what they do is they split the light into its components. So when we want to learn something more about an object than just its temperature, right? We saw we could learn the temperature by looking at the color. But we want to learn more about that. We want to split the white light into its component colors. So. Again, I think I've already started on this, but why is it useful? Well, if we look at the black body radiation, just the brightness of a star, we can learn about its temperature, right? how hot is it. We can learn about its brightness, how bright is it, and that's about it. I can learn about temperature, I can learn about brightness. However, when I look at the spectrum and lines in the spectrum, I can start to learn about the composition. What is, what is this object made up of? I can also figure out how it's moving, its speed, how it's rotating, any kind of motion that it has. We can learn about that by studying the spectrum. I can't get this from the black body radiation. All the black body radiation tells me is that it has a certain temperature. It tells me nothing about what it's composed of. A star could be made of all hydrogen or all helium or all carbon or all iron. If it was heated to the same temperature, the black body spectrum looks exactly the same. does not make any difference. However, when we split it up into its spectrum, different lines that we see will tell us the difference. They will tell us whether there's hydrogen there, or helium there, or carbon there, or various different elements. So it allows us to learn some more things about the stars, and again, things we couldn't otherwise get. No mission is even considered to travel out to another star to get a sample of it and bring it back to the Earth. Would not be possible to do. So we have to use other methods to be able to figure out what things are made up of. Now when we look at the spectra, we're going to see three types that I'm going to go over in the next couple of slides. So there's three different types of spectra. The first is the black body spectrum, which is what we call continuous. When I showed you those lines, I showed them as curves in the last one. You had curves that went up and then back down. There were no breaks in them. They were nice and smooth. They went up from lower intensities to peak intensity and then went back down. That's essentially what a continuous spectrum is. There's no breaks in it. It would be, for visible light, it would be the entire spectrum, red through violet here. But technically, it includes everything. When you have a continuous spectrum, it goes all the way out on this side, out into infrared, and then continues to radio waves. And it would continue on this side to ultraviolet and x-rays and gamma rays. Now, when you look at how much light, if you remember those curves, they dropped really quickly and went down close to zero. So technically, a light bulb is giving off mostly visible light, but it's also giving off some infrared. It's giving off some radio waves, but very, very tiny amounts. It drops even quicker on the other side, so the amount of ultraviolet or X-rays or gamma rays that a light bulb would give off would be negligible. It wouldn't be any important amount that you'd be able to measure even. But it does technically include everything. I mean, a continuous spectrum would go the entire range. But where it peaks is what is the most important. So the types of these things, so a star would be one example of a black body source. And that's a star, we have to ignore its atmosphere for right now. Remember how the sun had that atmosphere around it that we saw during an eclipse? If we can ignore that, the sun itself, just the sun, is a very good black body. Very good approximation to a black body. An incandescent bulb, right, the old style with a filament in it that you heat up, 
Those are examples of a black body. They give off radiation based on the temperature. How hot do you heat that filament up? Then it starts to glow. You start to give off light based on that. So those would be two examples. You could have an, a, a light bulb, again, an old incandescent bulb. You could have a star, again, ignoring the atmosphere, would also be a very good black body. It would be sources of a continuous spectrum. A planet wouldn't be a bad one either. The planets shine by reflected light, but if we actually look at the light that something like Mars is emitting, it would be emitting lots of infrared light. It's a much cooler temperature, and it would be emitting infrared light. So that would be another example. Now again, what we're seeing of Mars would not be part of this. What it's reflecting would be different. But the light that Mars is actually emitting itself, not reflecting from the sun, would be an example of a black body. Now if we're looking for these, these are in a black body, uh, this type of continuous spectrum I should say, is emitted by a solid, a liquid, or a dense gas. Boy, we took care of just about everything in the universe, didn't we? Any solid that you heat up, or a liquid, or a dense gas is going to give you a continuous spectrum. That's why I said stars are pretty much a dense gas. Planets would be solids. Liquids, if you heated up a liquid material that didn't vapor, it would be giving off the same kind of thing. They would give off a nice continuous spectrum. So solid, liquid, dense gas. What's left would be a not dense gas, right? So a diffuse gas. If you did the same thing, if you excite a diffuse gas and measure its spectrum, split the light, send that light through a prism, you get something more like this. You only see specific wavelengths. You don't get the entire spectrum you had here. You see a nice red line in this case, a bluish green, and then a couple, if you can see them there, they're kind of faint, but there's a couple off into the violet. That's all you see. The rest of the spectrum is blank because it's the, that gas is only giving off specific wavelengths. This is where it becomes important. This becomes a fingerprint. When we see this pattern of lines, it tells us it's hydrogen. Now, I don't expect you to know it from that, but I know this pattern of lines very well. This is the bright red line of hydrogen and a couple other hydrogen lines that are present. So if an astronomer sees this pattern of lines in a star, in a galaxy, in an atmosphere of something, they know that hydrogen is present just by seeing that pattern of lines. Uh, nebulae, clouds of gas, and I think we've had a couple pictures of nebulae that we've looked at. If we took a spectrum of those, if we took their light, sent it through a prism and spread it out, we would see just specific bright lines that would tell us what it's made up of. Each pattern of lines, each element gives us a specific set of lines that we'll look at in the next section, how that works. But for right now, each, each element gives us that specific pattern. It identifies that atom. So now when we see something, we see a pattern of lines, we can then tell what is this made up of. Now, so that's two types of spectrum. I said there were three. We've already covered everything. The third type actually combines these two. The third type we call an absorption spectrum. So you might see it looks a little bit like the continuous spectrum there except it's got a lot of breaks in it. And in this case, I picked one with a whole bunch of breaks. This is seen when you look at that continuous source, when you look at that star, when you look at that light bulb, through a cooler gas. So this would be a star looking through its atmosphere. If you look at a star, you're actually going to get this type of spectrum. 
from the atmosphere. In this case, you have certain wavelengths missing. Uh, some of those uh, may be the same. Uh, where do we have? Somewhere in here, hydrogen. Trying to count out where that is. 65, yeah, right there. That line would be a hydrogen line. There'd be a couple others that are down there that are hydrogen lines as well. But there's a lot more to it. It starts to get a lot more complicated. But stars, planets with an atmosphere, so things like Jupiter. If we looked at a spectrum of Jupiter, Jupiter emits a continuous spectrum. It reflects it from the sun. But it would also have absorption, different lines, absorption lines based on what its atmosphere is made up of. So without even sending anything to Jupiter, I can figure out what it's made up, what, what some of its components are, what some of the things are made up of. It only tells me about the surface. This would tell me nothing about what the center of Jupiter is because I can't get any light down there. It wouldn't tell me anything about the center of the sun. Center of the sun could, won't be as we'll see later, but could be made of something completely different than the external layers because we can't see that. All we're seeing from the central portions of the sun is a black body spectrum. So all we're looking at here is what the sun's atmosphere is made up of. And whatever those lines happen to be tell us what it's made up of. So if we see lines in an atmosphere, if we were to look at the atmosphere of Mars, for example, we'd see carbon dioxide. Atmosphere of Mars is primarily carbon dioxide. So is the atmosphere of Venus. We would see lines associated with carbon dioxide in the spectrum. It would tell us what it's made up of. If we looked at the atmosphere of the Earth, we get a little bit of carbon dioxide, but we get primarily oxygen and nitrogen lines. So we see two different things. It's one of the things we look at when we look for life out in there, when we see these other planets that exist. If we can ever measure a spectrum of one and find out that it has oxygen, wouldn't prove anything, but it would really be a, a really be something interesting to explore because the only way we know of to get oxygen in an atmosphere is through life. Wouldn't mean it necessarily had an intelligent civilization or anything. It could be very simple, a simple life. But to see oxygen in an atmosphere, studying at a spectrum like this, would be something very exciting. So again, this is a lot of what we see. If I took the spectrum of a galaxy, this is the kind of thing I'd see. If I took the spectrum of a star, most stars, this is what you'd see. So most objects you would see something like this because they're kind of a combination of the two. They have that black body component that gives them the continuous spectrum and they have some kind of atmosphere, something around them that gives them the emission spectrum or the absorption spectrum. So summarizing these in Kirchhoff's radiation laws, um, really I've given you Kirchhoff's radiation laws without stating them specifically, but essentially you get a continuous spectrum, which is the first slide I showed you emitted by any solid, liquid, or dense gas. So that's the first slide here. You have your light source, some star just ignoring the atmosphere, just a, just a star there with no atmosphere, and that light comes to Earth. We put a prism on it, break it into its spectrum. Boom, we get a nice smooth continuous spectrum. We can get an absorption spectrum. I'll do them in order. I have them out of order here. Absorption spectrum which occurs when that light from that continuous source, same source, here, but now it's coming through a gas cloud. That gas cloud absorbs specific wavelengths depending on what that gas cloud is made up of. So if that gas cloud is made up of hydrogen, it will absorb the wavelengths of hydrogen. If it's made up of helium, it will absorb helium. If it's made of carbon, it will absorb the wavelengths associated with carbon. Or it might be some combination of those. I can't make it simple. The gas cloud isn't going to be made of one thing. 
it might have hydrogen and helium and carbon. And then you have to try to decipher all the lines. So that's an absorption spectrum, continuous source through the gas cloud. Break that in through a prism, get up the spectrum, some lines are missing. That tells us what that gas cloud was made up of. Doesn't tell us what the light source is made up of. We don't know that. Because we don't see any spectral lines from that. But it does tell us whatever the gas cloud is. That gas cloud could be the atmosphere of the object. So we might be learning something about the outer layers. And then we could make certain assumptions to figure out what the interior is like. The other case is an emission spectrum. Emission spectrum, you see, when you're looking at just the light from the gas cloud. So you can imagine that as this one, but if you're looking at it from the side, so if an observer is over here looking through this, they don't see the light source behind it. They're looking at just that cloud. And in that case, they're going to see just the bright lines. You're not seeing any continuous source because you're not looking at the light source. You're only looking and they're going to see, in this case, they're showing just one bright line there. And whatever pattern you see, again, would tell you what that cloud is made up of. So things like nebulae like this, things like atmospheres of stars, atmospheres of planets, anything gaseous, we can start learning about what they're made up of. Doesn't work as well for solid surfaces. It's a lot harder to figure out what the surface of Mars is made up of because it's a solid, right? It's not giving off other uh, types of radiation. But it's very good for most of the objects that we will look, we look, we'll look at, especially in this class. So finishing up this section, and we're going to go look, then we're going to look at how these are actually made. Uh, we can use the spectrum to determine properties. We talked about the three types, continuous, emission, and absorption, as the three different types of spectra that we'd see. And Kirchhoff's radiation laws, that's what I showed you on the last slide, tells you under which circumstances each of these will occur. So continuous spectrum, solid, liquid, or dense gas. Emission spectrum, just that diffuse gas, or a non-dense gas. And absorption spectrum, you're looking at that bright source through a cooler, diffuse gas. All right, questions? I know this is one of the least fun ones. We've got to go through all the stuff to understand it. So these are not the, not the most fun ones. We'll get to some more interesting things with stars and galaxies soon. We can start talking about black holes and expanding universes a little more. A little bit more interesting than getting to all the uh, physical details here. So next we want to understand how we get these, because this really tells us how we can say that, oh, how do, those, how do we know those lines tell us that it comes from a specific atom? Well, going back to what the structure of an atom is, atoms are made up of three things. They're made up of protons, neutrons, and electrons. Any atom that we look at, whether it be hydrogen, whether it be carbon, whether it be iron, whether it be uranium, they're all made up of those three things in different amounts. So we have protons are in the nucleus of the atom, the central portion here, and they have a positive charge. The neutrons are also in the nucleus and have no charge. The electrons orbit around. So we've got some little electrons going around here in orbits. And they have a negative charge. So we have positive charges here in the nucleus, negative charges around it. If you have three positive charges here, you're generally going to have three negative charges here, which makes the electrons neutral, which is good. You don't want excess positive or negative charges because the electromagnetic force 
is many, many, many times stronger than gravity. Gravity is really the weakest force in the universe. The reason we don't have things going, the electromagnetic force being very important is everything's neutral, or almost everything's neutral. So there are no big clumps of positive charges. If the sun and the earth were both positively charged, they just shove away from each other. You know, gravity would be negligible. They'd be shoving away from each other so fast. You can see if you ever played with static electricity, like a comb, you know, how to pick something up. You can put it over little specks. Of, it'll pick them up. Right? It, it, it's defying gravity because the electromagnetic force between them is stronger than the gravitational force pulling that down. I know it's a light little object, but still, you got the whole gravity force of the Earth pulling it down. And you know, a little comb that you've rubbed through your hair and now has a static electric charge picks up a little piece of, little piece of paper or a little piece of something against gravity. So good that everything is neutral because otherwise we wouldn't have orbits and things that we do that we actually have. So this would be a model of an atom that is horribly off scale. That is not even close to being to scale. I couldn't draw one to scale. It's kind of like trying to draw a scale model solar system. You just can't do it because of the way things work out. Uh, the example I've seen for these, to do a scale model of an atom, you take a grape seed, how small a grape seed is, something like that, put it on the 50-yard line of a football field, that's the nucleus. The atoms would be out beyond the end zones. All, all, so this is not even close, I mean, that's not even close to being to scale. If you had this this big, I couldn't draw the orbits you know, in this building, let alone you know, uh, here. Maybe going off to the edge of campus, really. So just to give you an idea of the scale, and really atoms are empty space just like the solar system or the universe is mostly empty space. So just want to give you that. That's not really what things look like. This thing would be to this scale. This thing would be submicroscopic. It would be invisible to us. So. Let's look at a couple of definitions that we get here. First of all, an isotope. Uh, an isotope of an atom, it, this is important, they have the same number of protons in the nucleus. The number of protons in a nucleus tells you what the atom is. If it has one proton, it's hydrogen. Nothing else matters. Doesn't matter how many neutrons or electrons it has, it is hydrogen. If it has two protons, it's helium. Again, doesn't matter what else it has. There are other names for the other things, but the, you know, if it has two protons, it is helium. So as an example here, two isotopes, this is helium, two protons, the white dots there with positive charges. This one has one purple dot, one neutron. This one has two. Because they have two protons each, they're both helium. But the mass is different because all the masses in the nucleus, protons and neutrons, are about the same mass. You have three mass units here versus four here. So helium-4, helium we use to fill up balloons, standard helium that we use every day. That's most of the helium. But you can also have helium-3. You could do the same thing for things like carbon. Right? The carbon that makes up your body is mostly carbon-12. Little bit of a trace of carbon-13, and an even smaller trace of carbon-14. Carbon-14, have you ever heard of carbon dating? That's using carbon-14. It's part of every living being. It's radioactive and decays. And you can use that then. Its decay is predictable. So you can use that isotope of carbon to determine how old something is as long as it had carbon in it. So if you're trying to determine a rock, 
that's made of silicon, it's not going to help you. But if you're trying to date a tree ring or an old piece of uh, parchment going back you know, thousands of years that has carbon in it, you can use that and how it decayed. I'm not going to go through the details of it right now, but you can go through and figure out how old something is. That's using one of the isotopes of carbon to be able to do that. So that one's helium, but you can get the same thing for any element. The other thing we have is an ion. So an ion is, nucleus doesn't change, but the number of electrons change. You can take an electron or remove an electron or add an electron to an atom, and that will change its charge. So now you've changed the charge, but its mass essentially remains the same because these have all of the mass and the mass of the electron is really tiny. So all you do here is wipe out that electron, it's gone. Now there's no electron there. Now this has two positive charges and one negative charge. It's not generally a stable situation because of the electromagnetic force. This is now positively charged. If there's an electron around, they attract each other. Attract with a force much stronger than gravity, so it would generally tend to neutralize itself very, very quickly. So you wouldn't just get lots of helium that has an electron missing. Unless you have extremely high temperatures. If you have really high temperatures, this kind of thing can occur, and we'll see that in some of the stars. Uh, very, very energetic objects can actually look at, the, look at uh, ionized, things that have had electrons removed from them. So, overall looking at this, we look at what's called the Bohr model of an atom. It's not exactly how an atom works in terms of the orbits, but it works very well for being able to explain things. In his model, the electrons have distinct energy levels. That means they can be in one of these energy levels, and that's the only place they can be in terms of orbiting the atom. So you can have an electron in this first state, that we call the ground state, the lowest state. They could be in the next state, the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth, but they can't be in between. Why? It's the laws of quantum mechanics. When you go through quantum mechanical studies of this, there are very specific orbits that, a, that an electron can have behaves differently than like a solar system. I can, put an, I can put a spacecraft in orbit around the sun in any distance. It doesn't have to be at the distance of Venus or the distance of Earth. It would be, it could be anywhere in between them. Here, in order for the electron to go from one to the other, it has to physically jump. So you think of that as jumping from the orbit of Earth to the orbit of Venus. Boy, that would be nice for space travel if you could actually do that, right? You just have to jump. Get your energy right, boom, you go from Earth to Venus like that, instead of having to travel that space in between. And that's what the electron does. It just changes its energy level, loses some energy, gives off some energy, and jumps down. So moving to a, a higher energy takes energy. If, if you want to move something up to a higher energy level, you've got to give that atom some energy. Could be in the term and form of light, photons of light. It could be in the form of heat energy, right? We're moving them around and shaking them. That gives them some energy. If you get them moving around and banging against each other, you can actually cause some of them to excite. So if you go up to a higher energy, it absorbs energy. But if you go to a lower energy, it gives off energy. So in the net, it all comes out. It gets excited. You excite that electron. It jumps up to a higher energy level. It doesn't want to be there. It always wants to be down in the lowest state it can possibly get to. So as soon as you excite it up there, say to this one, it's going to start jumping back down and transition its way back down to the lowest level. 
each time it does that, it gives off a little bit of light. It gives off a photon of light. So when we look at them here, again the same slide, or same, same picture, but only those specific wavelengths can be emitted or absorbed. So this is the hydrogen atom. Simplest one, which is why we picture it. The other ones get even more complicated. But hydrogen can absorb wavelengths of 122 nanometers, 103, 97, 95, 94. Those are all in the ultraviolet. So it can absorb those wavelengths. The one we've looked at are the ones in the visible, which is this section. 656 happens to be in the red, 486 is in the bluish, and getting out to the violet with the 434 and 410. But what that means is that hydrogen can absorb those wavelengths or emit those wavelengths, but it can't give off a wavelength of 500 nanometers or 550 nanometers. Anything in between those two, it cannot do. So when we look then at hydrogen, it gives off those very specific wavelengths. And in the visible part of the spectrum, right, what we're used to talking about, we would see these set of four lines primarily. There'd be more because you could actually have more energy levels out here. But you would see these set of four lines. If you looked in the infrared, you'd see a set. If you looked in the ultraviolet, you'd see another set. But what we'd see is then a set of lines like this. So there's those four wavelengths, one, two, three, four. You might be able to see even a fifth one coming in there. When we see that fingerprint, that pattern of lines, wherever we see it, means hydrogen is present. If we don't see that pattern of lines in something, it doesn't tell us hydrogen is not present. There's some other things that come into it as well. Uh, you actually have to be able to excite the atom. So if the hydrogen's really cold, you're not going to be able to excite it enough to get it up to these energy levels. How are you heating up something that's that cold and it's, it's not going to give off these energy levels if all the electrons are down here and there's no heat source and they're not bumping around against each other to energize them. So when we see this pattern of lines it tells us that hydrogen is there. Not seeing it doesn't tell us hydrogen is necessarily not there. The second one is helium. So helium has some similarities to hydrogen. There's a red line over here and you've got some down in the blue and violet, but has this very prominent yellow line. And all the wavelengths are a little bit different. Nothing lines up. So each of these would then be able to tell us what an element, what an object is made up of. When we see this pattern of lines, we know for sure that hydrogen is present. When we see this pattern of lines, we know for sure that helium is present. When we actually look at something, a little more complicated. This is the sun. It gets to be a mess. The sun isn't made up of just one thing. The sun is made up of dozens of different dozens and dozens of different elements. So you can find hydrogen in the sun, helium, carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, neon, uh, iron, silicon, you know, I can go on, go through the periodic table. You can find most of those elements have been found in the sun. So when you really look at it, you see all those different lines, each of them is different looking for telling you about different elements. So it really gets to be complicated to determine these things. Not quite as simple as just, you know, oh we see this pattern of lines, we know what it's made up of. It gets to be a lot more complex. To make it even more complicated, different ionizations give you a different spectrum. So if we have hydrogen, Hydrogen has one electron, so it gives us some spectrum that we've been looking at. If I take that electron away, hey, we're, we're lucky because there's no electrons left. It doesn't have a spectrum. 
has nothing else to give off. So ionized hydrogen gives you nothing. It doesn't have any electrons to jump between the energy levels. Helium has two electrons. It gives us this pattern. However, if I take helium and I get it really hot and excited and rip off one of those electrons and lots of them, now the spectrum changes. I didn't bring one up here, but ionized helium gives you a different pattern. If you take the second electron off, then you're down to zero and you don't have to worry about it anymore. But it gets really complicated for some of the really heavy elements. Carbon has six electrons. So you get one, one spectrum for carbon with six electrons, another one for five, another one for four, another one for three, and so on. Now, admittedly in many of those you only see some of those at very high temperatures. But it can get very complicated when you're looking for lines of iron that have been ionized ten times. It's a different spectrum than iron. It's a completely, and it's completely different. It's not just slightly different. It's not like the lines just move a tiny bit. It's a completely different spectrum. Molecules give an even more complicated spectra. Molecules don't, don't even just absorb lines. Sometimes they absorb, absorb whole bands of the spectrum. So when you get molecules in there, they can take out a whole chunk of the spectrum. Molecules just meaning atoms bound together. So water molecule. H2O, two hydrogens and an oxygen, that would absorb light as well. It would be completely different than what hydrogen absorbs or what oxygen absorbs. As a molecule, it absorbs things differently. Carbon dioxide would be another one, right? Carbon, CO2, one carbon, two oxygens, it would give a different pattern. But it would be something that we could detect and still measure. So it does get a lot more complicated. I just, I mean, I give you the nice simple ones to try to get it across. That we can tell the difference. If this object is made primarily of hydrogen and this one is helium, we're going to see two very distinct differences. But really, it gets very complex when we look at objects in real life. All right, so finishing up this section, uh, we talked about atoms, what they're made up of, protons, neutrons, and electrons. The electrons can only have specific energy levels, and that's what gives us this fingerprint. Those energy levels depend on the atom, so you get a fingerprint for each atom. So Iron has a fingerprint. We see that pattern of lines, we know iron is present. Helium has a distinct pattern, another pattern. Hydrogen has a separate pattern. Carbon has a pattern. Each element in the periodic table has its own, own pattern and we can then use that when we find those lines to make sure to, to understand what things are made up of. And we'll come back and look at this a little bit more when we actually get out to talking about the stars and what the stars are made up of. But it's one way to really be able to tell what things are composed of out there. Now, how else are we going to know what a star is made up of without this? If all atoms gave off the same spectrum, I couldn't tell you. I would not be able to tell you what things are, what things are composed of. All right, and the last section I wanted to get through here, um, last section of this chapter is talking about waves and motion and figuring out the motion of objects. How do we figure out how things are moving? We saw that comet today. You could see it moving over the course of 90 minutes. right? It was easy to see. When we're looking at stars and we're talking about tremendous distances, you can't notice them. In many cases, many, some stars you can't even notice moving over the course of lifetimes, let alone over the course of one night. They do move. All, everything in the universe is constantly in motion, but how can we determine that? So what we want to look at, first of all, just in general for waves, is that if you have a source moving that's creating waves, it's going to affect the pattern that we see. You're going to see a different pattern. If it was, and I should have left one here that was playing before this 
know, if you just had one here, everything would be coming out nice and smooth. Like throwing a rock into a pond, you get waves going out in all directions. They're all the same regardless of which size, side you're going on. However, if you've got a boat going through the pond and it's moving, you're going to have, it's still creating waves, but they're going to get all bunched up in one direction. In the direction in which it's moving, they get bunched up. They get closer together and you get a shorter wavelength. Opposite the direction, they're going to be spread out. So they're going to be stretched out to a longer wavelength. So if you watch a boat going across, you're going to see waves are all bunched up in front of it. Right? When, you're going, when the boat's going really fast, they get bunched up a lot. And you get a whole kind of shock wave almost in front of it when you're going fast enough. And they get spread out behind it. Now it does depend, I should, just wanted to qualify, this depends on the relative motion of the observer and the object. So it really doesn't tell you who's moving. It doesn't tell you whether it's the boat moving or you're the one moving. Or you know, in terms of sound waves, it doesn't tell you who's actually doing the moving. It's the relative motion that is here. The boat could be standing still in a river. Right? river could, with a high, fast flowing river, if you had the boat anchored there, you'd get the same, same pattern. Bunched up in the direction of motion, spread out behind, behind it. So you would get exactly the same pattern there. Doesn't matter whether it's the boat moving or the water moving, you can get exactly the same thing. Now of course you usually don't get the water moving that fast, but you do get it in other cases. And one case would be sound, sound waves. So here you've got the car there honking its horn. As it starts at the beginning, it's its rest, so the wavelengths are going out the same in each direction. But as it starts to go forward, these ones get compressed. These ones get stretched out. Now what does that change? Well, it's sound waves. It's going to change the pitch of the sound. So this car is coming towards you, or you going towards the car, is going to make the horn sound like a higher pitch than if it's going away from you. If you hear this with a fire engine or a police car, right? if you're standing by the side of the road or you pull over to the side of the road as a fire truck goes by, you hear a higher pitch coming towards you, all of a sudden it whooshes by you and you get a lower pitch. The guy driving didn't change the siren, right? didn't have a higher pitch, now I'm past that person, let's switch it to a lower pitch. It's all exactly the same. In fact, the person riding in, the, riding in there has exactly the same, here's exactly the same pitch the entire time. So they would not notice any difference. The person honking the horn would not notice the things there because they're not moving relative to themselves. They're, they're sitting there at rest. So, but you'll notice that as you go through, you know, fire engine coming towards you, you get a little bit higher pitch. As it zooms past you, all of a sudden it's a much lower pitch. And this is an example of what we call the Doppler effect. And it is a way of measuring velocities. Or at least that part of a velocity coming towards you or away from you. So, when we look at the Doppler effect, what it measures is only the velocity along what we call the line of sight. So the part of that velocity, remember velocity has a magnitude and a direction. So when we have a velocity, this plane here is moving in the direction of the red arrow. But we can split that up into two components, one component coming towards you and one component going perpendicular to your line of sight. All that the Doppler effect measures is the green arrow. So this plane traveling here, as the radar dish tracks it, is only measuring its velocity towards it. It can only measure that component of it. It cannot measure the entire velocity. It cannot measure this 
portion of it. It can only measure that little, that part of the velocity. That means when the plane is just passing right here, at this instant as it comes right by the installation, it's not moving at all towards or away from it at that instant. You can send the radar signal out, it bounces back, you're going to get a zero. It's not moving. It is moving, but it's not moving towards you or away from you. There's no relative motion in this direction. Therefore, you're not going to be able to get any radar signal. Same for any radar. If you have, uh, if you're if you're driving down the highway, and they take a radar measurement as you're passing a police car, you no know, perpendicular, it's going to get a zero. That's why they don't measure you when you're passing right by them. They measure you when you're way off in the distance coming towards them or going away from them. Because if you're coming almost towards the thing or almost away, then you're getting a very accurate measurement of the velocity. But as you zoom by, it's not going to measure anything right at that instant as you're perpendicular, as you're passing it. So in this case, it only measures that, that velocity towards you or away from you. So objects like this, I'm showing it in terms of a plane here, but this would work for stars as well. A star moving by the Earth over time, passing by. You might have a velocity towards you. That doesn't mean it's on a collision course with us. It just means that it's at least part of its velocity is in the direction of Earth. Its overall velocity might pass by, and thousands of years from now, we might get a negative velocity. It might be moving away from the Earth. So that's all it's measuring is that component. It can only measure what's coming towards or what's going away. Now when we look at this in terms of spectra, we can have lines that again to be shifted, lines that appear to be shifted. So there's our hydrogen lines that I've been showing you all day. Red line, greenish one, then out into the blue. If we look at an object that is moving towards us, then all of the wavelengths are shifted. Remember, they're bunched up as something is moving towards you. It works for sound. It works for water. It works for light. So if you're moving towards you, they're going to be bunched up. They're going to be pushed towards shorter wavelengths. That's this bottom one here. This line that was here in the spectrum is now shifted over here. It's moved towards the blue. So we call a blue shift. What a blue shift means is that it's moving towards you. If you see a blue shift, or you're moving towards it. Again, we can't tell the difference. If we're moving towards the star or the star is moving towards us, what's the difference? It's just relative motion. It doesn't really matter who's doing the moving. It, but the, that's, that's what the Doppler shift is going to measure. If it's moving away, the wavelengths are stretched towards longer wavelengths. And you're going to get shifted towards the red. So this line that was here would have been right here and now is a little bit over towards the red. So a red shift, if you see it shifted towards the red or towards longer wavelengths, it means it's moving away from you. A blue shift towards shorter wavelengths moves, means it's moving towards you. And again, relative motion. We don't know who's doing the moving. I can only tell relatively what the motions are. The amount of the, the greater velocity, the greater the amount of the shift. So the faster something's moving, the bigger you'll shift this. So if this red shift were moving further away from us, it could be over here, even faster here, here, here. It could keep getting, the faster it's moving, the further that's going to be shifted. To get any significant shift, you've got to go at a good fraction of the speed of light. So you're not going to take, generally, a line out here in the green and shift it into the red. 
It happens in very distant astronomical objects, but not going to happen in everyday experience. So you could actually shift from one color to another, or from one part of the spectrum to another. So the greater the velocity, the greater the amount of the shift. This is the kind of stuff I would ask on a quiz or exam. I'm going to go over some calculations on the next slide. I just wanted to emphasize that would not, not on, the, on the second exam. Um, you might actually have to do one of those calculations. I think I had one in the homework if I didn't get rid of it. So you might have to actually do the calculation that I show you, but it would not be. But I would expect you to have this kind of knowledge when we look at, an ex when we look at the uh, exam. So you know, if I tell you something is shifted, if it shifted towards a longer wavelength, I hope you can tell me it's moving away. If it shifted towards a shorter wavelength, I hope you can tell me it's moving towards. And if it shifted twice as much, I hope you can tell me it's moving faster. Those are the kind of things that I would ask you for like the quizzes or exams. For the calculation, the last part I wanted to do here uh, is to show you actually the Doppler formula. We can now calculate velocities. So let me give you what everything has here. This is the Doppler formula, which is, allows us to calculate the velocity. V is the velocity of the object. And it's only, again, the radial velocity, that velocity going towards you or away from you. We can't measure the rest of it. We can't measure the rest of it through this method. There are other ways to try to get that, but they're a little more complicated. C is just the speed of light. That's a constant. We know that number, 300,000 kilometers per second. Then these two are the wavelengths. The delta, Greek letter delta, the triangle here with the upside down y lambda. So delta lambda here is the change in wavelength. How much did the wavelength shift? How many nanometers? So if it shifted by 2 nanometers, if it went from 656 to 654, it would be a shift of 2 nanometers. The lambda with the subscript 0 below it simply means the rest wavelength. That's the true wavelength where it should be if nothing was moving, where we'd measure it here in the laboratory. So what you do is take that, what you measure, the shift that you measure, the rest, these two you know. If you know what your wavelength is, that's a, con that's a number that you'll know. C is just a constant. So you measure the shift in wavelength, and it gives you the velocity. And I'm going to do an example of that on the next page. But that's all you need to do to do it. So when I give you an example like this, for example, on a homework, look at the amount of the shift, divide it by where the wavelength should be, multiply it by the speed of light, and that gives you the velocity. Again, that component of the velocity, that part that's going towards you or away from you. Uh, let's see. So that's, what we can, that's how we can use this to actually go about doing the calculations. So let me go over one example here. I left the equation up in the corner. But we take an example. We have a spectral line and a star is observed at 656.5 nanometers. We know that it should be at 656.3. And we want to figure out whether it's coming towards us or away from us and how fast. The easy part, the exam portion of the question, would be this first one. Right? It shifted towards a longer wavelength. It should be at 656.3. It's at 656.5. It shifted a little bit towards longer wavelengths. Therefore, it's moving away from you. Exam question, that would be the end of it. Homework question, then we've got to calculate. You can calculate the velocity. By knowing the change in wavelength, knowing the rest wavelength, and knowing the speed of light. So if we take those and put them in there, 300,000 times 
0.2 nanometers, the difference between those two, how much it shifted, divided by the rest wavelength, would mean that it's moving at 91.4, about 90 kilometers per second. That's a tiny shift. That's only two tenths of a nanometer. That's a really tiny shift. And that is 90 kilometers per second, not kilometers per hour. Uh, so that would be what? About about 50 some, about 53, 54 miles per second. Pretty fast. I mean, it's not, it's not just that two tenths of a nanometer. You've got to be moving pretty fast. That's why I say you're never going to see this kind of shift in real life. You're not going to ever notice it because it is so small for light. Even just shifting two tenths of a nanometer, you're not going to see any color change there. You've got to change by, by 100 nanometers or ten, at least tens of nanometers to be able to see any kind of shift. So again, this is the radial velocity. It's not necessarily the true velocity. So we know it's receding just by looking at those two wavelengths. We can calculate how much based on the amount of the shift. So finishing up here, and we timed that just about right. Um, we talked about how waves are affected by the object moving. And a red shift shows that an object is moving away. A blue shift that an object is moving towards the observer, or again, the observer is moving towards the object or away from the object. That's why when we say when we look at the red shifts of galaxies and they're all moving away from us, it's again just relative motion. It does not mean that they are truly moving away from us and not that we're moving away from them. And then we can use the Doppler effect to determine at least part of the velocity with which something is moving through space. So I'll finish up there. And if you have homeworks, I will take those. If you're going to submit them up on D2L, just make sure I get them by 6 o'clock tomorrow. And I will have the answers available shortly after that. So if you don't see them sometime in the morning early, you know, let me know and make sure I get them up there for you.